Hi and welcome to RTB, the podcast from Northeast Ambulance Service. I'm Jason O'Connell, a clinical education officer at NIAS, and in this episode, we talk about call taking with Emergency Operations Centre trainer Ria Kilmister Dawson. In our conversation, Ria tells me about the work that goes on behind the scenes to ensure callers get the right support, how the feedback process works, and lots more. Hi, Ria. Uh, thanks for joining us on RTB. So. I think best thing to start is just tell us a bit about yourself. So what's your background, what do you do and things like that? Um, so my kind of background before I came to NIAS was I, I was a primary school teacher. Um, I came into NIAS in 2018 as a call handler um, for 111, then moved into being a dual train call handler. Um, and then in 2021, I moved to the training department for the EOC. So now I'm an emergency operations centre trainer and I train all the new call handlers and all the other call handlers that need upskilling when they come through. So we're kind of focusing on what happens when someone calls 111999. So obviously, as you're saying, dual train. So it's fair to say that everyone who works as a call handler within the ass will take either 999 or 111 calls. Yeah, it's usually within 12 months, everybody is taking both kind of calls. So we have um, 111 intake and 999 direct intake occasionally. Um, But it's mostly people will come on as a 111 health advisor uh, within the the average is kind of within nine to 12 months, then they'll upskill to taking 999 calls as well. But that is kind of an expectation when they come through is everybody is going to be taking both kind of calls. And we're actually the only service in the country that operates that way. Yeah. So you get a good broad spectrum of everything in a shift. You're not just dealing with 999s. You're dealing with, you could be dealing with 111s mm-hmm. and everything. So I know for myself, because obviously when I did my Manchester triage train, it was it was you who looked after me. Yeah. For quite a while. <laughs> um, like I, I'm, I'm always blown away, I must admit, by the work that is done in EOC. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that everyone who works on the road should do an observation shift in there just to see the amount of work you do. Because what really opened my eyes more than anything else was, especially coming from the road background, where we get dispatched to a lot of calls that maybe are not what the crews would deem appropriate. Um, but I think it's so difficult to get everything off the road. Like when you're on the phone to someone, what I couldn't believe was the amount of stuff that gets screened was absolutely amazing. Um, do you mind talking about how the clinicians do that and things like that? No, not at all. So um, with most of the um, the calls, they will go directly onto the dispatch stack. And then we have um, the CTLs, the clinical team leaders, they will come in do shifts within dispatch and they'll be um, screening the calls and calling the patients back. On 111, all C3s, Category 3 calls will get put onto the EOC clinician stack for them to be screened. Um, And also we'll have clinicians like dispatch clinicians as well that aren't CTLs that are going and going through the stacks and calling patients back as well. Um, A lot of the calls do get what we call um, like a a hear and treat. Um, So we do have quite a substantial portion of calls per year 
that do get like a hear and treat status. It's, it depends year on year, but it usually is around 50,000 calls um, out of the over 1.2 million we, t- we take average. Um, about 50,000 of those are what we call a hear and treat, which is where the clinicians will call the patient back. They validate using pathways um, like NHS pathways triage system. They'll validate what the patient has said. Um, and then they use their own um, kind of clinical input, looking at patient history and stuff like that to be able to see whether they do actually need a crew to go out to them um, without having to see them face to face. So it is quite, you know, it's 10% ish of calls get, get a hear and treat like outcome where we don't actually need to send a crew out to them, which is quite good. Aye, that's good. Like, especially at the moment with the amount of pressures we have, like 50,000 calls a year might not seem like a lot, but it, it is when you break that down into vision into a division say that's like nearly every call for say a station or something exactly or a group of stations a year so it, it is a, a, a big chunk in the grand scheme of things really mm-hmm. so say someone could say someone joins up to want to be a call handler come into the ambulance service what what would the training package for them look like then if they want to come in as a health advisor so um they come in and do uh, two weeks of pathways training. Um, NHS pathways is the triage system that we use at um, at NIAS. Um, all services that run one 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 use pathways. Not all of them nine 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 use pathways, but all services that do one 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 have to. Um, so they'll come in and do two weeks of pathways training. They have three assessments. So they have um, an assessment online, which is multiple choice. Um, a written assessment paper, and then they have um, audits that they have to do. So you know, audit assessments. If they don't pass any of those elements, they don't have a job. And that's part of their contract. They're aware of that when they come in. If they do successfully pass the NHS NHS pathways section, they go on to three weeks of what we call systems. And that's teaching them how to use Cleric, teaching them all of the um, SOPs. And so the the way that we do things, um, all of the policies and procedures of NIAS, and we have loads of practice. They get to go in and listen to the call takers. So they have two sessions of a full day of seven and a half hours of listening to um, people that have been in, in the practice for you know about six months. We try and get them to, to go and hear someone who's actually quite comfortable and, and good at using the system. Um, and then they get assessed for systems as well. And then after that, they go into what we call grab bay which is a one week consolidation where they sit with an NHS pathways accredited coach. Who's also a dual trained call handler and they'll sit with them for five days. They have five, five shifts to do with them. And then at the end of that, they also have to pass another five audits in the live calls that they've taken. And if they don't pass those audits and they can't get past that grad base stage, again, their contract is terminated. So it's really a robust process that we have in place at each stage. Um, And it's, it's a really full on six weeks for them. And that's just the full-time ones. The part-time ones slightly different, but the full-time course, that's what they have to do. Um, so it's it's a big commitment for them. It's Monday to Friday for five weeks. And then it's doing a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then a Saturday, Sunday in their consolidation shifts. Um, and, you know, it's, it's full on. I had to do it. Everyone has to do it. Um, and it is a full on six weeks. And again, we're the only service in the country that kind of does these things the way that we do. We've got the longest training period because we just think it's so important to get them as comfortable as we can before we put them in the live environment. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't realize it was it was that long. I actually only I thought not it was only I thought it was a three week 
I didn't realize there was other things after. Like I knew you came in, you'd done your two weeks, and then your three weeks. I didn't realize there was so much after that as well. Um, you mentioned there about auditing. So does everyone in EOC get audited at a certain, like say, twelve month audit process or anything like that? Or is it just your new starters? No, everyone gets audited. So the pathways um, audit is. Um, split into eight sections so um, you have an achieved a partial achieved and a not achieved for each section um, and then they have to have that feedback with their team leader and if there's anything that's picked up where you know they're failing on say for example one of the sections is on probing and questioning if they're failing that section um, sig- like uh, consecutively and they're finding that they're having issues with that then we would arrange further training for them for that but yeah, it's team lead, like the team leaders get their calls um, audited if they take overflow calls, all the health advisors do and all the clinicians do. We've mentioned pathways a few times. It might be worth, because um, again, there might be crews in the road who are not aware what pathways is. Do you mind telling, just explaining what pathways is? No, of course not. So um, pathways, um, NHS pathways is part of NHS digital. They develop and manage the triage system that we use um, and lots of other services used as well. As I said, all NHS 111 services use Pathways. Um, basically what it is, um, it's it's kind of what it, what it describes. So it is a triage kind of database that is made up of different pathways and dependent on what we call um, the symptom discriminators and symptom groups that the user, i.e. the health advisor or the clinician, puts into the the pathway system, the algorithm will then at the end of the triage, so a lot of series of questions, you say yes, not sure, no, there's loads, there's, you know, there's different ways to go through it. at the end of it, it will come up with a safe, dis- what we call disposition. So that could be that they need to, one of the dispositions is to have contact with a local service within two hours. So what that means is that we need them to see um, possibly something that's like a GP service where they have a practitioner who's able to prescribe. They need to see that person within a two hour time frame, And then we have um, tagged onto it and embedded into the system is something called DOS or Directory of Services. Um, again, that's a... Um, something that's managed um, by NHS England, <clears throat> excuse me, and for us it's actually managed by NEXT, uh, by NEXT, N-E-C-S, um, which is the commissioning services. Um, and what that then does is it will bring up, um, based on their address and which GP practice they're registered with, it will bring up services that are appropriate for that patient to go to. We also have a booking system that's embedded in that, CMS, where we can actually book appointments for the patient and refer them electronically. Um, so it's quite a complex system. Um, like I said, it's maintained by uh, NHS Pathways, which is part of NHS Digital. Um, and it's overseen by um, clinicians from every single kind of major um, major area is, is a mem- like comes into Pathways and they um, oversee everything. And, you know, they decide how a question is going to be worded. If they say yes to this question, what's the next question that's going to profile? What symptom discriminator is that going to feed into the algorithm? There's a lot of stuff going on in the background, but it takes a lot of skill to be able to use it properly. I will say that. <laughs> I can imagine. And I know you mentioned uh, the DOS directory services. That must be difficult considering the geographic area we cover. So you could be in, say, Newcastle and have access to hundreds, or you could be up Berwick and you've literally got the nearest urgent care centre could be NSEC. <laughs> With the directory of services, um, 
it's it is based on where the patient is registered as a GP and where the patient is geographically within um, a 60 kilometer radius but then again we do have patients who like live in Annick or live up in Berwick and if they need to go to A&E then they do need to go to NSEC there's not really anywhere else for them to go um so it you know it's it's not infallible. There are things where you have to kind of apply a little bit of common sense. Um, our geographical area is large. Um, it's not massively densely populated, but because of the massive mix that we have of urban and rural, and not just rural, but extremely rural populations that live within the Northeast, it is a real challenge for the services to be able to get, um, just to be able to get, um, like, a decent amount of of cover anywhere you know because it's down to the ccgs individually where they provide that cover what kind of services they're going to provide to um, patients in that area how many appointments out of hours doctors have there's a lot of stuff that goes into it and like i said next manages it and they do a really really good job um but it is it can be really really challenging for the health advisors because you you actually have to have a working knowledge of the entire region to be able to use directory of services um, in some circumstances. So it can be really, really difficult. As I say, like, I, I, I don't envy your job at all. I, I think you're all amazing in there, to be honest. Like, I, you couldn't pay me enough my weight in gold to, to do your job full time. <laughs> I think you're, you're a very special, special group of people, to be honest. The way I kind of like to explain it to people who are especially road staff that are coming in to, um, to listen in because there are staff that do come in to listen in and staff that go into observe and dispatch. And I would hundred percent encourage that. I think it's so important, especially for like student paramedics. I think it is so, so important for them to see what goes on in the background before they go out to see a patient. Um, I mean, if you think the average the average number of jobs for a, for a crew that's operating in an urban area like Newcastle could be anywhere between five and eight jobs per day, um, a health advisor will take that many calls in an hour. Um, when I was on the phones, when I was kind of really experienced and working at my full capacity on a 12-hour shift, I would take between 80 and 100 calls. Um, so it's it's very fast-paced. Um, same with dispatch they're managing on a busy shift they're managing god knows how many jobs on each desk every single day like every single 12-hour shift um and you have to prioritize in dispatch and that's something we don't have to do in in health advisor like in the call hand and roll we just kind of take the next call as it comes dispatch have got so many balls that they have to juggle and it's it, it you know that they have to make some really, really tough decisions. And I think it's really important that people know that th- that that actually happens. I think the ambulance pro- program really helped with the understanding of that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's a really tough job and it's not for everybody either. So I think that's the most important thing really is having the right mindset when you come into work. Otherwise, it is so easy to get overwhelmed. I can imagine. So <clears throat> obviously it is a very stressful job you've got what are there any kind of support mechanisms in place for you guys in there like anything to help with mental health or anything like that yeah yeah we've got um loads of loads of stuff in place actually so we have obviously we've got andrew walton's coming now um into occupational health and he's just done a he's in well in the process of doing a project called flourish um 
which is helping people to identify if they need a little bit more support, um, if they're getting a lot of anxiety from work and things like that. So that's massively helpful. We do have um, in training, we do a lot of focus on well-being, which is carried through um, with the team leaders within the EOC. So a lot of the support that you do get um, in in the operations centre is going to be from your kind of your direct team leader. Um, We also have quite a few trim practitioners as well within the the EOC, including including call handlers that have become trim practitioners as well. Um, so that's really, really helpful. And we have a lot of mental health first aiders as, that work within the EOC. So um, there is a lot of support there. Um, it's not, you know, a case of, well, we've got calls queuing, you've just took a really difficult call. So you're just going to have to crack on and do it. That's absolutely not what happens. Um, you can, you know, we'll log you out, give you time off the phone. You can have a debrief with a team leader. It doesn't have to be your team leader. Any team leader that's on shift that's free can do a debrief with you, make sure you're okay, all of that kind of thing. So there is a lot of support there, um, which is very much needed sometimes because some of the calls that we take are quite um, hard say quite challenging i can imagine um yeah i mean i was talking to well i was interviewing for the student paramedic role and we had a few people coming through from eoc and some of the examples they could give for communication you really gotta think outside the box sometimes because you're only at the phone you think you're only at the other end of the phone but they're, they're able to think outside the box find other ways to communicate yeah like again you guys are great like <laughs> we try I mean like when you think about out of the box communication just like there's you know if someone's had a stroke and they've lost the power of speech you know we've I mean I, and I've done this myself it's a case of trying to get their address it's like saying right I'm gonna say all the like two letter combinations that we have for our region I'm gonna say all those two letter combinations and I want you to tap the phone when I get the right one um it, it's it can be really really difficult but and you do have to have some out of the box thinking 100% like that critical thinking level has to be so high because we can't see patients we can only hear them and it's trying to get information out of somebody who's extremely confused or who's lost the power of speech or is in a lot of pain you really have to work very very hard to find something that's going to work and work with them otherwise if you start working against them you're just not going to get anywhere Aye, that was a that was a really good way of thinking of it. Actually, <laughs> bring up the force codes. That's that's excellent. Actually, um, yeah, I mean, it must be difficult. To, uh, just various different things because then you can only go off what the patient tells you because they're not actually right in front of you, are they? So it can be. I think that's probably where some crews might feel a little bit. Oh, this is a chest pain, but you get there and it's not. We can only go off what the patient tells us, can't we? So like, and unfortunately, we know some patients know the buzzwords, don't they? Exactly. Um, I mean, my my kind of example of, of how I'd say that is, I mean, I know there's, there's you know, there are some crews who may think that the, the system, the triage system that we use, um, especially if they've not had any experience of having to use it or coming into the EOC, may think that it's over safe. But at the end of the day, we don't want it to be under safe either. So it's really difficult to strike that balance. Um, but if a patient is telling you, you know, they've got, you know, crushing chest pain that's not going away, it doesn't change when you move, we're going to send a Category 2 ambulance to that patient. And if you as a as a paramedic, you arrive on the scene, they tell you the exact same thing and you put an ECG on them and it turns out they're not having, um, you know, a, a heart attack. That's, you've been concerned enough to put, as, as, as to do an ECG on that patient. We can't do that over the phone. We've just got to go with what they're telling us. 
So we're listening for those trigger words. We're using, like I said, critical thinking skills. You have to have a lot of them. We're probing to make sure, you know, it's definitely not changing when you shrug your shoulders. If you move your arm for me, is it making the pain worse? If you twist your body, is it making the pain worse? We're asking all these questions. And if they're saying, no, no, it's just the same. It's staying just the same. It's really, really bad. It's right in the center of my chest. We have to send that crew out to that patient. We have to be better than safe than sorry, because the last thing we want is to be sorry. Yeah, I definitely. I think it's probably good as well to mention here that the role you guys play in safeguarding. Um, there's been quite a few successful safeguarding incidents raised through call handling for stuff you've heard in the background or things that patients might have said. And that's incredible that you're able to pick that up and get something actioned just through a phone call. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> So you really have to hone your listening skills because it's one of, you know, you've got your voice and you can and you can hear them. Those are the only two things that you've got to communicate with that patient effectively. Um, if you I mean, we do do a lot around safeguarding and our safeguarding team at NIAS is fantastic, but they, we do a lot of training around safeguarding as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, we always kind of say in training, if you get to the end of the call and you feel like something is just not quite right, if you're thinking something is not quite right, that means that you've heard something that has made you feel that way. And you you should really be either, you know, putting the safeguard and listening to that call again, making sure what you heard is what you heard, all of these kinds of things. But it's it's silly things as well. It can just be, you know, they tell you a story and it's like, well, that's not, that can't really happen. Um, so we, we do a lot about, you know, bruising in non-mobile non children and accidents in non-mobile children it's it it doesn't just happen there has to be something that's caused it um listening to the background noise of you know right till the very end of the call they hear if you know if they get off the phone and you just for two seconds hear them start to yell at someone they've just called for um and being like derogatory and being abusive to them in that way there's a lot of things there's so many things and i think for for us especially as health advisors, you tend to get the most truth out of a patient or a caller because they don't really necessarily, and this isn't meant in a bad way, they don't necessarily see you as an actual person. You're just that disembodied voice at the end of the phone. So they're much less likely to have their guard down, plus they're more panicked. Um, so they're, they're less likely to be kind of thinking up excuses or thinking up different ways that they can phrase something to make it seem less serious. So you're much more likely to get the truth out of them at that first point of contact which is why it's so important that we're really, we really do focus on that safeguarding aspect. Hi, like uh, I say, I've, <clears throat> I've done my safeguarding training for this year and some of the stuff you guys have picked up is that's just how you've managed that and just those few little words just said in the background and you've gone, right, there's something wrong there. And you've managed to basically save a kid's life <laughs> just through that wasn't quite right. Like that, that as well is amazing. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing is the majority of the safeguards that do come through are, are about children. Um, and that can be a really, really difficult call to make for the health advisor. I think, you know, is this is this just something that, that could happen on a normal day to day? Is this just a normal accident because, you know, kids are clumsy and all that kind of thing? So a lot of what we train and a lot of what you develop as a health advisor as you get more experienced is really that listening between the lines ide like ideology of like what's the tone of voice that they're saying are they stumbling over their words you know 
waiting a couple of minutes and then asking a question again to see if you get the same answer. All of these things are skills that you develop as you get more experienced. Um, and, you know, we've made some good catches and quite proud, quite proud of the EOC that we've been able to to do that. But it, but you, you, you get, when you don't have, when you don't have them face to face in front of you, the little details are magnified because you put so much focus into those listening skills. You can pick up so much more than say someone who's just kind of walking past on the street or they'll just have a momentary, oh, is everything okay? And they go, yeah, yeah, no, everything's fine. And then they'll just walk off. You can't do that with with a health advisor. You have to go from point A to point B. And in that point A to point B, before we get to that disposition for you, we're going to ask loads of questions. And you don't know whether we might be probing a little bit more to catch it out. You don't know whether we might be probing a little bit more to make sure that we've got the correct information from you. There's a lot more that goes into it than, than people think. So I think finally, I think we'll try finish up on a, a, probably a little bit of a, a, a nicer topic than safeguarding. <laughs> One that's a bit more happy. Um, so I personally have been at a few jobs um, where I've recognized the skill of the, the call handler basically has made a massive impact on this patient. Do you get much feedback, positive feedback from crews? It depends. Um, it does depend. I mean, we get the the feedback that comes in that comes in from like the patient experience team when when patients call like call in or they send letters or stuff like that. We do get a lot of that feedback. Um, I think with in terms of like with the calls calling through into dispatch, um, that can that can really depend how busy dispatch is because sometimes they and honestly, I've I've been in dispatch. I've shadowed. I know how busy they can get. Sometimes they just it just gets kind of forgotten a little bit um but we do we do get those that positive feedback and again if we've if we have those audits at the end of at the end of the month so every month we get where five audits feed fed back from our team leaders if there's really positive things in that we'll we'll get extra information too um so we do we do get that you know those those patient experience team thank yous and and everything like that the same way as the crew would they'll get in touch with you over email we also have our own kind of little system so we have something that's called the headset hero that is run by the senior health advisor team within the eoc and that's um every every month um a health advisor from each of the sites so newburn heaven and winter house um gets a awarded with headset hero and they get nominated by their peers they can get nominated by the team leaders they could get nominated by the audit team um say you know they've taken i've overheard them take this really really good call and they were fantastic with the patient they you know handled a really difficult situation tremendously they got um they did a really really good triage and so that happens every month as well so we have our kind of little own internal thing going on too um not only is that nice for the people that are in Headset Hero, but I think it's also really nice for the other health advisors to be able to nominate their peers as well, um, just to to give them that little bit extra kind of confidence boost to think, well, actually, my colleagues think I'm doing a really, really good job too, and we're all doing this really difficult job together, and they think I'm doing it exceptionally well, and that's really, really nice. You still get stock badges if you assist with the delivery of a baby over the phone? Yes. So I, I have, I've delivered seven babies over the phone, um, but my team leader stopped giving me badges at four because she said it was unfair. <laughs> um, so I've only got four stalk badges, but I have actually delivered seven babies over the phone, but only one girl. I've had six boys and one girl. 11 years in the ambulance service, I've had 
well, I haven't had personally three babies, but I have assisted in the delivery of three babies. But that's is like a lot of the time. But this is you've got to think when this when it used to be a category two for an obstetric emergency, a lot of the deliveries were happening over the phone. So you were just dealing with mum and baby when you got there. And rather than actually assisting the delivery, whereas now it's a category one. Most of the time when someone gets a, a, a delivery over the phone is literally just them saying, catch the baby, because it's already most of the yeah. way out of the, the mum. <laughs> There's no stopping um, that process. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think finally, just to finish up, have you got any advice for anyone who's thinking of joining EOC as a call handler? I think my biggest piece of advice is make sure that if you want to come in and do do call handling specifically you do need to have and I think this this goes for all of me has to be honest any kind of operational one I can think of you need to have so much resilience you need to have a really really good support structure around you um and you need to be able to kind of create that within your team as well so obviously if you're on the road as a paramedic you've got your crewmate that you become really close to in dispatch you have your team that you work with all the time and it's the same within the EOC but the amount of resilience you need to do to, to you need to have um, and develop to work within the ambulance service is, I think some people underestimate it slightly, and I'm sure you'll agree with me as well. Um, Jason is someone who's worked on the road, and just make sure that you've got the the time to be able to do the training properly. Because if you don't put in the time, you're not going to succeed in the training either. You have to be willing to do stuff at home you have to be willing to put the effort in. It is like being back in school for, for five weeks and some people can find that challenging too. Is it, is it an apprenticeship or is there, is there a, an award at the end of the training or is it internal in the ES qualification? No, it's just, um, you just get a Pathways accredited um, health advisor. So Pathways provide the accreditation. With that, you can go and work um, within kind of any service that uses Pathways. Um so it's Pathways Accredited Health Advisor. They also have um, Pathways Accredited Coaches, which are Health Advisor Coaches. And then me, which as a trainer, I'm a Pathways Accredited um, Trainer. Um, so it all comes from Pathways and it's just the license to be able to use the system. And it says that you can use it safely and you can use it effectively. And in my case, it means I can train to use it safely and effectively as well. That's brilliant. Well, Ria, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, hopefully I'll see you again up in control in the coming months. <laughs> oh, hopefully, yeah. I'll just If I see you, I'll just give you a little wave. I do, yeah. You can throw something at me, whichever you like. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to RTB. Please like the show in your podcast app. And if you have time, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard on RTB, or if you want to suggest a topic for us to cover in a future episode, you can email us at public dot relations at nias.nhs.uk